Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Now, getting to our series, we're in James. And so if you're in uh, James, if you've got a Bible, turn it on, open it up, whatever it looks like. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter 4 today. James chapter 4. And so we just got a few more weeks left in our series, and it's been a good one, looking at just this idea of wisdom and, and the steadfast faith that comes from us having good wisdom and wisdom that is coming from above. The Lord instructing us on what faith truly is, a faith that is um, active, a faith that is not passive, a faith that is accompanied with good works, not works that save you, but works that prove that you are saved. Uh, being doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And so James is, is kind of known as the, the Proverbs of the New Testament, where he's just getting down to the nitty-gritty and just being real with these Jewish Christians who have been dispersed throughout the region. He's getting real with them and saying, if you are saying you are a Christian, then these are going to be the things that flow out in your life. This is going to be how you act, how you conduct yourself, how you live your life, how you speak with your words, how you pray with your heart, how you communicate both with God and with others. This is what James is instructing. He's, he's getting down to just practical daily living, which really is the, the idea of wisdom. Like having knowledge that is not being applied or lived out means that you are foolish. You're not an actual wise person. But being able to take the knowledge that we are learning and that we are growing in and the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of God and, and theology and all those things, but then actually living them out and applying them to our lives is what makes a person wise. It's what makes them wise. And so this wisdom is what's coming down. And, and this one takes a little bit of a, of a turn or just kind of an interesting shift based on what was taught last week as we looked at James three seventeen through 18. And I don't think I thought you taught that one, right? Uh, you preached last week. Uh, James three seventeen through 18. Um, James says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then it's peaceable, gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so what a, what a nice, gentle scripture there that James is preaching to these Jewish Christians. There's, there's a harvest of righteousness for those who make peace, who, who pursue peace, who rely on the peace of God in their relationships. And then James says this in the next verse, chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fighting among you? And so we go from peace and, and not showing impartiality and, and being uh, peacemakers and relying on the peace of God to then him saying, what, why are you fighting? Why are you fighting? So it feels like it's this kind of like the new chapter. It feels like it's this train of thought that is going from one thing to the next thing. But one thing that's important for us to know when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to reading the Bible, is that in its original written text, there are no chapters and verses. All right, those were added by translators later so that we can navigate the scriptures and find the content easier. But when it comes to the original written letters, 
They're letters. They're written like you would write a letter to someone else. I mean, I doubt most of you, when you're writing something or you're texting someone something, you're not doing chapters and verses based on your text. You're just giving a complete thought. You're just writing to them. And so here, James is attaching a couple of things. And, and, and not only is he revealing something about the church, but he's also throwing in some rhetorical questions that we're about to see that are, that's going on within the church to get down to the root of why they're not actually being peaceful and why they're not making peace among themselves and what actually keeps them from being peaceful, what keeps them from relying and trusting on the peace of God. And so that's what we're going to look at Today is, again, James looking at these Jewish Christians and he's saying, I mean, you call yourselves Christians, you call yourselves little Christ. And if so, then this wisdom that Christ possesses and this wisdom that is pure and gentle and peaceable and this wisdom that is coming down to us, that we have a harvest of righteousness before us to be able to sow and to be able to to reap and to be able to live out in our lives if we have access to that and that is who we are as christians then why are you fighting why are there fights among you and so that's the question we're praying james answers for us today as we look at this big idea of james helping us understand what kind of troubles arise fighting quarreling when our passions are at war within us our passions are at war within us so i'm going to read through this and kind of break it down into a couple of points as we go through so starting in verse 1 james chapter 4 here's what he has to say what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is this not that your passions are at war within you you desire and you do not have and so you murder you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the first point I want to look at from these first three verses is that your passions are at war within you and have the ability to create war among you. Your passions are at war within you and they have the ability to create war among you. James asks this question. If you say you're peaceable Christians, Christians, then why are you fighting? And then he offers this answer. Is it not because of your passions? To better understand passions, we need to dive into the original language of it. The original language. Because we like passions. I mean, passions can be good. Passions can be bad. And so what are we referring to when he's talking about this idea of passions? And if you weren't aware the Bible is not written in English, all right? So what we're reading is a translation of its original language, which is both Hebrew and Greek with some Aramaic thrown in as well. But it's primarily Hebrew and Greek in the New Testament written in Greek. James writing this letter in Greek. The word for passions is hedon. I'm not going to give you the Greek actual, you know, enunciation of it, but it's hedon, which is where we get the word hedonism from, hedonism. And the way or ethical belief of hedonism is its main goal is for your self-gratification. It's your main pleasure. Like all of life, the main goal of life is for you to be pleased. That, that's the idea of hedonism. And so when he's talking about these passions, these pleasures that are at war within us, he's getting to the deepest level of what pleases you is also what's causing fights and quarreling among you. 
This is kind of the idea of us getting into preferential treatment, if you will. Like, we all have preferences on what songs are sung or what sermons are preached or how, you know, what, what kind of facility we meet in or what the order of service looks like. I mean, these are church wars that have been gone, going on for who knows how long. It's like, you don't sing enough hymns. Well, you don't sing hymns at all, or you sing too many hymns, or I didn't like these songs. One was too fast, one was too slow, one was whatever it looks like. And so there's these kind of silly quarreling and silly fights that can kind of creep their way into the church. And at the end of the day, that's, that's actually not really what he's even getting at here. Like he's not getting about preferential pleasures. He's getting at something that's way deeper than even just preferential pleasures. He's getting at the difference between the identities of the pleasures of Christ among you and the pleasures of your sinful nature that are within you. That's the main idea that he's getting at here and that really we want to, to dive into to see how he gets at applying some, some things that we need to do with this information that you'll see here in a minute. But one thing I want you to see here is Desires are not wrong. Just in general, desires are not wrong. I, there, there's um, back in Tennessee, there were some independent churches, independent Baptist churches, if you will, that were so fundamental in wanting to be head knowledge, do the right things, that they felt in this idea of hedonism, doing anything for pleasure, that they almost had to become like like Spock, like no emotions, no pleasures. Like, don't, don't let any of those things ever distract you, ever lead you astray. Because at the end of the day, if you enjoy anything, it has the ability to lead you into temptation. It has the ability to lead you astray. And God is not about that. God, God, God created emotions. He created pleasure. He created satisfaction. He created those things. The issue is, is whether or not we find our pleasure or find our satisfaction in anything other than God. Other than God. If we're looking for truest satisfaction, truest pleasure in food, then we become a glutton. Because the reality is this food is never going to ultimately satisfy you. So you think you need more, and you need more, and you need more, and then you get into gluttony. Or if we think that ultimate satisfaction is going to be found in sex, then you become lustful you become uh, perverted you become sexually immoral because you keep going down the route of i need more i need more i need more and whatever's not satisfying leads you into ultimate perversion of it or when it comes to money you become greedy you become to the point to where i need to keep going down this route and gaining more and grabbing more and, and acquiring more to ultimately satisfy myself but it's never going to get there because it was never meant to satisfy and everything i just described are things that god created for good for pleasure to be stewarded rightly to see him as the greatest treasure rather than those things as treasures themselves. They're good things, but they're not meant to be God things. And so what James is pointing us towards here is this idea that we are saints with good desires that are meant to worship God based on this new identity that we have, 
But at the same time, we are sinners with still desires and passions and pleasures within us that wage war with this new identity that we have. And so it's kind of like, have you ever um, had the desire to get in shape, to be healthy? And that's a good desire that leads you to creating a, a workout schedule or a meal plan and a goal of what you want to accomplish on this diet. Like, like you, you want to get healthier. And then there's a trunk or treat that happens on a Friday night. <laughs> and your kids come home with buckets of candy. And you're like, okay, there goes that diet, you know, because all of a sudden now I've got these other desires that are hungry for this temporary pleasure of chocolate, which is great. I love chocolate. But all of a sudden it can kind of shipwreck the greater desire that you have. And so how do we manage? How do we deal with? How do we steward the fact that we are, as Martin Luther literally says, we are saints, simultaneous sinners. And all he really means at the end of the day is that is that we are in good stand because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of the salvation that he has saved us with and the and, and the grace that he has poured over us and the forgiveness that he has offered us. We are considered in God's eyes, righteous saints. But yet we're not yet glorified. All right, we have not yet arrived at the end of, of life, whether Jesus returns or we die, and we get that new glorified body, enter into that new glorified state where our minds are perfect, our hearts are perfect, our bodies are perfect, because we are now eternal with God forever. That's an inheritance that we receive, but we don't have it yet. And so we're in this simultaneous state right now. This is why when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, you still mess up. You still sin. Because there's this relationship between the new passions, the new creation, the new identity that you have in Christ, and this old flesh, this old member, this old body that you still have that's breaking down, that's dying slowly, and that is still saturated with sin. It's a reality that we are facing. And scripture talks about this all the time. Romans 7, 22 through 25 says this. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now he's getting to his soul level there. His spirit in his inner being. I delight in the law of God. Right, my greatest desire is the law of God. My greatest desire is scripture. My greatest desire is Jesus. Anything Jesus, I'm about it. But I see in my members, my body, my mind, my, my hands, my feet, my passions, my flesh, and my members, I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I mean, you're just hearing Paul there He's like, my, my deepest inner being is, is delighting in the law of the Lord. I'm all about Jesus. And with my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm renewing it. I'm, I'm growing in the knowledge of the Lord. I'm growing in the knowledge of who he is. I'm, I'm submitting it to him. But at the same time, I'm still finding myself having these desires to do wrong. And to sin. And, and, and to get myself over to the members of, of what is pleasing to the temporal. Wretched man that I am. 
I'm a saint, but yet I still sin. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, just so that it's not the Apostle Paul only saying this, but Peter also says this. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's who you are. All right. He's not saying that's who you will be. He's saying because of Jesus in you, because of the abiding relationship that you have with him, because he's forgiven you, that's who you are. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. This is your current state. And then he says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we've got Paul preaching this. We've got Peter preaching this. We've got James preaching this. All to different audiences, but all to Christians who are fighting within themselves competing passions, competing desires. And there is a greater one over the other one. But sometimes it's hard for us to see that. It's hard for us to see that. For the sinner, they only have one desire. And again, that's the hedonistic desire to please self. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got one chief aim of life. Self-pleasure. Selfishness. Seeking self-gain, whatever that looks like. But for the Christian, we have two desires. The desire to please God and also this desire to please self still. And so what James is doing is he's getting to the heart of our desires, our pleasures, our passions. He's getting to the motives behind what we do because the motives reveal what we want to do. And so he throws out some, some more rhetorical situations here. And he's wanting, what he's wanting to do for these Jewish Christians is help them see that just because they're forgiven and just because they're considered saints, they're still giving themselves over to these sinful passions and these sinful desires. And at the end of the day, that's not okay. That's not okay. It's something just like Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, rebuking the church. James here is rebuking the church. He's rebuking these Jewish Christians who are doing something that they should not be doing because it's, it's out of step with being a saint. It's out of step with what they believe about Jesus. So here's some of the rhetorical situations that he gives to them. He says, you desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain it, and so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, you you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Self-pleasure. And so at the end of the day, your passions, the way that we need to understand them and the way that we need to steward them and manage them is your passions are either, this is point number two, your passions are either righteous or unrighteous. And we need to categorize them. We need to always bring our passions before the Lord to say, is this desire that I have, is this good and holy and right and in step with the Spirit? Or 
Is this not good? Is this unholy? Is this wrong? And it's out of step with the Spirit. Rather, it's in step with my flesh, the members of my body that are waging war against me. And what James's goal is, and what honestly any of the Bible's authors' goal are, is for you to understand that the greatest pleasure in life is not anything found in this world, but it's ultimately God himself. Like, that's the first question if you've ever read, uh, read the Westminster Confession. Is this, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is for us to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Like, that, that's why God created us, all right? There's some theological beliefs out there that God created us for community as if God was bored and lacking. And that's just not true. Like, God was not just hanging out for eternity and it was like, man, you know what would be great is if we had someone to talk to. And so let's just create humans and let's, let's have conversations with them. Let's interact with them. No, what God did, and this is not prideful, even though if anyone can be prideful, it's God. But what he did was he said, you know what? And this is, you know, this is paraphrasing. All right. Don't quote me on this from a scriptural verse. But what he's doing amongst the Trinity as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are interacting and communing with one another for eternity. They're saying we're so awesome. That let's create people to enjoy us. Forever. Like in them honoring us, in them worshiping us, in them glorifying us, they're getting to enjoy us because we're so amazing. We're so amazing. That's why God created us at the end of the day. And so our chief end, our chief aim of life is to get to the place where we're glorifying God. And in that process, we are enjoying him. This is why John Piper, in his famous quote from his book, Desiring God, says, and this is, he takes hedonism and he adds Christian to it. He, he kind of redeems it to this idea of Christian hedonism. Because at the end of the day, we are created to enjoy. We are, in, we are created for pleasure. But he's saying the only way for us to truly experience pleasure and enjoyment is God is most glorified in you when we are most satisfied in him. That's his quote. God is most glorified in us. He's most worshipped when we are enjoying him above anything and everything else. We are finding more pleasure in him than we are finding pleasure in anything else. And that's why James then harshly rebukes these Jewish Christians Sometimes we, we need friends to rebuke us, right? Like if our Christian friends are only ever sin coddlers, then we may go on sinning because we don't think it's a big deal. But it is a big deal. It is a big deal. True joy and true pleasure is at stake here. But more than that, the glory of God is at stake here. That's why Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth, and if you were to ever sum up the entire mission and vision of God in one verse, this is it. Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's God's mission. Get his glory to cover all of the earth. 
wherever there's water in the sea. And if you've been in the sea, there's not a place where there's not water. It's the sea. All right, it's kind of a weird play on words here. He's going to get his glory to cover everything. Because at the end of the day, that's why he created it. To see his glory. To experience his glory. And in that place, find the greatest treasure and pleasure possible. So again, James knowing that these Jewish Christians, who should be making peace, but instead are fighting among one another, he knows that that is a result of misguided sinful desires. And he's going to rebuke them for it. Listen to this in verse 4. You adulterous people. James, it's just an argument, man. Like, we're just fighting. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here, James is drawing a line with his rebuke. You adulterous people. You say you are in relationship with the Lord. Yet you have a love affair with the world. That's what he's getting at. You adulterous people. You say, as Jewish Christians, you say you love the Lord, yet you are revealing the fact that you love the world more. And you are taking that world out and you're having an affair with it. Believing that it is going to provide more pleasure than what God has to offer. And then he takes it a step further to say that those who wish to be a friend of the world make themselves an enemy of God. Now listen, this is very important to see here. This is not James saying that those who are saints, simultaneously sinners, are now only sinners. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that you can be a saint and then no longer a saint. What he's revealing is like what he's revealed earlier when we were talking about faith and works. We were talking about the tree that produces fruit and the tree that doesn't produce fruit. They're both trees. They're both saying that they're trees. But the only one that produces the fruit is the one who is the true believer. The one who does not produce fruit, who does not produce works, is a false believer. One who just says it with his mouth but does not actually live it with his life because there's no true salvation there. What he's getting at here is those who ultimately go the route of finding pleasure in the world alone are only revealing the fact that they were never a saint to begin with. They are revealing the fact, making themselves an enemy of God because that's truly who they are. That's truly who they are. They're sinners only. They're enemies of God only. And that would be Though that may sound like bad news to some, it's really good news. It's only bad news if you only ever hear that you're an enemy of God. That's why I love verses like Romans 5, 8, when it says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, later he says enemies, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That's the entire message of the gospel. While we were sinners, Christ paid our penalty of death 
in order for us to receive his reward of forgiveness and life. Like We don't get a reward because of anything we did, but only because of what Jesus did for us. That's why, again, James says, God, appro- God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I guess it's important for us to know because, again, it's good for us to rebuke the person who's constantly pursuing pleasures from the world rather than seeking pleasure from Christ, from God only. It's good for us to rebuke that because we have these truths. We have these beautiful truths in Scripture to be able to draw them back to what's actually going to be the thing that they're looking for. Satisfaction. One of my sons, because of their loving grandfather, his favorite song is, I can't get no satisfaction. And he goes around singing it all the time. But that's what our world is living in. They're looking for the satisfaction, but they just can't get it. And the good rebuke would be us to tell them, because you're wrong. You're wrong. You're looking for it in all the wrong places. Christ is the only thing that will ultimately satisfy us. So what do we do? What do we do? There are these competing desires within us. One for worshiping God and enjoying Him. And the other for sin and self. One is true pleasure and the other is counterfeit pleasure. What do we do? James is going to tell us to bring our passions before the Lord and submit them there. This is number three. Submit your passions before the Lord. Maybe even going with this idea of the war theme, these battles among us, these fights among us, surrender your passions before the Lord. Verse seven. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now that doesn't sound like it's very pleasurable. That doesn't sound like um, if if you were to go to a a non-believer and you were to say, hey, here's, here's what you need to do. All those wrong things that, you need, that you're doing, that you're living, that's out of step with, with God's design for life. Like those are called sins. You need to stop doing those things. You need to come and, and you need to mourn. And you need to weep. And you need to just be wretched. Like that sounds counter gospel. That sounds counter joyful, right? Like that doesn't sound like, hey, you're seeking satisfaction. Come be miserable, and that's going to be more satisfying than what you're going after. But that's not really what James is getting at here. What he's getting at is is these two passions that we have. When we are walking in the passions of the flesh, what we need to do is we need to come and bring those things before the Lord. But that does something to you. When, When you bring your imperfections in front of perfection, that's humbling, right? Like, that's humbling. I mean, it's humbling enough when, when you know you've wronged someone who's right, all right? For, 
For those of you who have been in arguments with somebody before, and in the argument you thought you were right the whole time, and then eventually you get to this place where you're like, man, I was really wrong and they were right, and I have to go to them and tell them that, hey, I just want you to know I'm, I'm wrong. No one is coming saying I'm wrong with a happy smile on their face. Hey, I am enjoying the fact that I was wrong. No, it's a humbling experience to be able to come and submit yourself to someone else and say, I was wrong. Be wretched is not be sinful. All right, I know wretched in the Bible oftentimes is referred to as being sinful. Here in the original language, it's, it's referring to the idea of being miserable. Being miserable because of what we've done that's wrong. Mourning and grieving the sin that we've committed. Getting to this place where as we're growing in our right affections, it is leading us to hate the other affections. Like that's huge in our battle with our passions that are at war within us. Because every, every relationship you're walking through, every decision that you have to make in life, every career path that you're walking down, literally as you're walking through life and you are presented with a situation, you have passions within you that are leading you one way or the other. Literally everything could be a fork in the road. Do I worship God or do I worship self? And what he's saying is, is as we bring these things to the Lord and submit ourselves to him, we will get to this place to where, where as we're coming to the fork in the road, we will hate to go this route. And we will love and be pleasure, pleasurable and, and satisfied if we go this route in worshiping the Lord in it. That's what he's getting at here. Get to this place where you hate sin and you're killing it. So that as we worship God and we trust him and we rely on him and his grace and his mercy. We are we are experiencing life and life abundant, as Jesus says in John 10. To be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's only then and there that we begin to find true peace and the truest of pleasure. I've never met a Christian who has said, I regret following my desire to pray. I've just never met a Christian who said that. I, I regret going this route. I've always and constantly, I think we have these conversations almost every community group. I regret going this way. I regret saying this. I regret choosing this. Making this decision. Saying this in a conversation with somebody. We want to get to the place where we stop regretting and we start battling and making war within our souls at the fork in the road to where we're killing the flesh. Because of the power of Jesus that lives within us. And we're putting it to death. We're casting off our old self. And putting on the new self of Christ. And walking in step with the Spirit. And so what they do. What these Jewish Christians have done. Is what James does kind of get surgical here with this last little part. 
What they do regret is following the sinful desire to be greedy, or as James says next, to criticize others. Verses 11 through 12, and this is the last point. Verse, or, uh, point four is criticism, as he says, is the kind of trouble that arises when we don't submit our passions to the Lord. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law and you are not a doer of the law but a judge, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So one thing to point out here, rebuking and judging are two different things. All right. Christianity has gotten into this weird place where it's not okay to rebuke others because people have dubbed that judging. And that's just not true. Like, if I call out somebody for sin, or what usually happens is people call me out for sin, I can't just stamp on there, hey, who are you to judge? You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And what if they know their Bible, what they can say is, yeah, God is judging you through me. I mean, that's true. That's what Scripture has called us to. That's what accountability is. It's good and right. Now, yes, there is, as we saw earlier in James, a way to do it, where it's removing the plank out of your eye as you're seeing the speck in another person's eye. It's making sure that you're that you're bringing your sins before the Lord before you bring someone else's sins before the Lord. There's a, there's a good, right, and holy way to go about it. We're not just rebuking sin police going around just trying to figure it out because that's kind of what they're getting at here in James with these Jewish Christians is they're going around criticizing others to make themselves feel better. They're judging others according to the law without judging themselves according to the same law. And what he's getting at is there's a judge who's doing that, and he does it pretty good. All right, the Lord's good. He doesn't need any help when it comes to judging who's ultimately a believer and who's not a believer. Leave that work up to the Lord. They're going around saying, you're not a believer, you're a believer. You're not a believer, you're a believer. Can you believe what Susie did on Tuesday? Maybe I shouldn't say this, but someone's, you know. Like that's what's going on within this church is, is just constant criticism of one another that is not healthy rebuking. It's just judging. And what James is saying here is, is we need to be able to categorize the two different things. We need to be able to practice wisdom that is from above in how this works itself out. We are all saints and sinners. And what we need is a safe place among ourselves to hold each other accountable to our passions of our flesh while reminding ourselves who we are in Christ. That's the safest rebuke that you can give somebody. Hey, I see, like, I love you. I love you. I know that you are walking with the Lord. And I know that you've 
maybe uh, or as you're walking through a stressful situation or as you're walking through life, whatever it might look like. I know that, that, that maybe I've perceived some things, I've seen some things that seem to be out of step with the Spirit of the Lord. And this isn't how you normally are. Usually you are encouraging, loving, kindful person because of the grace and work of Jesus in your life. That's usually how you are. But I've seen you be a little short. And I've seen you snap at people. Or I've seen you not follow through on your word when it comes to volunteering or whatever it might look like. And so I just want to remind you who you are in Christ. Like, if you were to come to me with that type of rebuke, I mean, I'm probably going to enter into that phase of like, like wretched. You're right. I'm, 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 I'm terrible in doing that. I'm sorry. Like, I, I need to come back to this fork in the road and trust Jesus in this moment and put that to death. Thank you. Thank you. And that happens. That happens. I mean, Josh is great at doing that for me. <laughs> like it's, and I know I've called that out a couple of times, but, but it's true. All right. My wife's great at doing that and I can see it coming. The more we practice that, this faithful rebuke like James is doing with these Christians here, the more we normalize it among ourselves in a loving, Christ-centered way, you know what that creates among this church? Christians who are truly satisfied. I mean, let's just... We talk about, like, one of my roles in, in the church is to just cast a vision. What, and, and who knows what that even really means. But at the end of the day, what it does mean is, who do we want to be? What do we want to look like five years from now, 15 years from now? And what we're really doing behind the scenes is, is who is this church going to be 30, 40 years from now? What's the community around it going to look like 30, 40 years from now because of the faithful presence of what the believers today are doing with the gospel? And this would be one of those vision things. How would people experience the district church if we were constantly going to one another and pushing each other to worship the Lord in every decision we make with the affections that we have versus gratifying the sinful desires of our flesh. I mean, I can tell you right now what that would be is a group of people who are marked by satisfaction, pleasure, worship. And that's, I mean, that's something that's contagious. I mean, that's something that is you talk about being like salt of the world. I mean, like, have you ever just eaten one chip and stopped? Maybe that's one of those, like, maybe that's this lane of the uh, sinful desires. But being able to taste and experience a Christian who is satisfied in Christ versus anything that the world has to offer for someone who is spinning their wheels trying to be satisfied with the world and they meet someone who's not satisfied with the world but satisfied in Christ and therefore nothing that the world throws at them affects them? I mean, that's, that's like Apostle Paul type stuff. Where he gets 
tortured. He gets beaten. He gets shackled and chained. And he gets thrown into a prison. And what does he do? He doesn't sit back and complain. He doesn't sit back and worry. He doesn't sit back and criticize. Well, if so-and-so would have been here, if Timothy, if Timothy was here, this wouldn't have happened. No, he's, he's singing and praising the Lord. He's worshiping in the worst of conditions and circumstances. Why? Because he's, he's not looking for satisfaction from the, from the world. He's not, he's not worried about his 401k. He's not worried about retirement. He's not worried about... He, he's satisfied in the Lord and pleased in that place to where that same guard who's torturing him and imprisoning him gets freed from the own shackles that he's experiencing by witnessing the Apostle Paul worshiping the Lord and sharing that good news with him. And then that guy becomes one of the leaders in the church of Philippi to help plant it. That's vision. That's what we want to see in our neighborhood, in our community. is people who are able to do what James is calling us to do here. Categorize our affections. Be able to know yourself. And, and again, one of the best ways to do that is help have others help you identify yourself and know yourself. To be able to know which passions are going towards the Lord and which passions are going towards your flesh. And then say no to them because of Jesus in you who was able to say no to them when he lived on the earth. And to say yes to Jesus because of his yes to submitting to his father and living a perfect life. That is at your fingertips. That's at the deepest level of your soul. And that's where we got to train ourselves in righteousness to be able to do what he's calling us to do here. So submit yourselves before God this morning. Bring your affections, your desires, your passions and pleasures before him. And the rest will fall into place as it should. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you expose us. That you reveal the motives of, of our hearts, whether good or bad. And you're giving us scriptures like this one. Your half-brother, James. Allowing us to see that, that, that we, we struggle with these passions that are at war within us. And these passions are causing wars among us. Father, help us to bring those to you and submit them to you. And, and honestly, just to nail them to the cross that Jesus hung on. And they were put to death. They have, they have no bearing over our souls anymore. They have no power over us anymore. We have another option. We have a greater desire now. The desire to honor you and glorify you and enjoy you forever. And Father, that is where we want to rest. Because no longer are we fighting our flesh anymore. No longer are we longing for satisfaction that we cannot attain anymore. We have found it in Christ and we can rest. 
We love you, Lord. And we thank you for the work that you have done in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at